Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Ryan Polly Podcast. I have a bonus episode coming up for you today on a secular approach to morality. But before I do, I would like to make one quick reminder, maybe announcement if you want to call it that, in that, you know, I love interacting with you guys. I love answering questions. I love being able to do Q&As. And I understand the difficulty with a podcast is it doesn't really make that very easy. Uh, unless you are joining live on YouTube, I don't get to answer your questions or interact with you guys live. And so I want to remind you of your opportunity to send in those questions. I love hearing from you. And there are times where podcast listeners do text in their questions and I'm able to address them on the show. And so I want to take this time to just to remind you that that is a possibility. And I love getting questions from you, hearing where you're listening from, hearing what you think about the show, and then also hearing what your questions are that you have about the content. So uh, two quick reminders. One is the last Friday of every month is a live Q&A on YouTube at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That actually is coming up this Friday here in about two days if you're listening to this right when it gets posted. And so you have the opportunity. If you're not working during that time, you can join me for that live Q&A. But also you can send in your questions ahead of time. You can text them in at 714-989-6927. That's 714-989-6927. You can text those to me or you can email Email them at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. And I would love to hear what questions you podcast listeners specifically have, what comments on the show that you have that then can be addressed on upcoming episodes and upcoming Q&A shows, even though you may not be there live. And then you can listen to it after the fact on podcast, whatever you want, whatever you're doing. You don't have to be sitting at a computer watching YouTube. You can be like me listening to podcasts on my bike ride. So I want to just remind you of those opportunities, one coming up here in just a couple days, but then also at the end of each month. So with that, I think those are all my announcements. Let's get to the show this week, this bonus episode for you on a secular approach to morality. Hope you guys enjoy this. Well, I think that there are some serious issues with believing that morality is determined by consequences. If you think that the consequences of an action, whether good or bad, is going to make something as being morally good or bad, moral or immoral, there are some major issues with that. And so today I want to cover some of those issues with you. Why, especially as a Christian, you should not hold this view called pragmatism, where we judge the truth of something based on the practical consequences, but instead hold a Christian ethic when it comes to morality. And even if you're not a Christian, hopefully helping you understand not only what Christians believe, but also why you should abandon pragmatism, that consequences determine morality, and instead hold to a better ethic that allows you to actually judge actions as being right and wrong. That's going to be the conversation that we're going to have today. My name is Ryan Pauly. If this is the first time you're joining the show, this is a weekly show where I encourage you to think deeply about the Christian worldview, what Christians believe, why they believe it, and then learn how to live it out well, how to live it out consistently, uh, to consistently live out the Christian worldview. So that's what we talk about. That's of interest to you. You guys can subscribe and check back later for more interviews. And so we're going to be working through today a conversation I had in my YouTube comment section where I got into a conversation with someone who was advocating for this pragmatic view and, and, and how I responded. This actually also came up in my high school class as I just finished teaching on the different worldview approaches to ethics. And then actually a conversation at church on Sunday where someone asked me how I would defend an objective moral standard to someone who did not believe in objective morality. So we're going to talk about all those together and looking at this Christian view of morality. Now, before I get there, I have some kind of random thoughts, thoughts for the day that I want to share with you that I've been seeing kind of pop up lately. And I want to address because it's 
well, it's, I guess you could say it's kind of bothering me a little bit. And it's not bothering me because people are necessarily saying this, but I see it as an issue that I want to address and hopefully you are not doing the same. So this actually, the first one I wanna share with you came up also in some comments that were made to me on some of my YouTube videos. Like for example, this one that says, um, this is a blatant lie that I said the four gospels are independent sources. I can't believe you lied to a room full of kids. Another one, you have lied about your religion, being I am dishonest to admit facts like all Christians do. Or there's only one theory of evolution, you desperate liar. And so I've received some of these comments as well as I've seen these comments on other channels where I was watching an interview with Dr. Hugh Ross on a different Christian apologetics channel where Hugh Ross started to state some facts that he believed about how science and the Bible line up. And a Christian said, you are a liar. You are lying to all of us. And so I wanted to address this issue. And oddly enough, as I was taking these screenshots and getting ready to say a couple words about this idea of calling people liars, I received a fourth comment uh, calling me a deceiver because I say that the soul can leave your body at death and is in the intermediate state waiting in the presence of Lord while your body is here. Now, I want to be very clear about something. I could be wrong. I could be mistaken. I believe in this channel that I am giving you knowledge, justified, true beliefs. I'm stating what I believe is true and I have good reason to believe it, but I also recognize that I could be wrong. I can get some theology wrong. And I hope that you can point that out when I do get something wrong and that I'm humble enough to change my mind, change my opinion, to make sure I stand up for what is true. The issue is this. When you are calling someone a liar, and I hope you don't do this, and if you have, maybe I can convince you to do differently. If you're calling someone a liar and a deceiver. You are assuming something about them. Now, none of these people who said this to me know me and I don't know them. But recognize when you call someone a liar, a liar has a certain definition, right? A liar is someone who is saying something they know is not true, trying to deceive you, intentionally trying to deceive you. A deceiver is someone who is trying to trick you. So by calling someone a liar and a deceiver, you are assuming that they know what they're saying is false, that they're lying to you and trying to deceive and trick you. You're assuming something so negative, something so horrible that you may not even know. They, they, these people don't know me, know me. And that's why I say like, I can't be a lying because I honestly believe that what I'm telling you is true and I try to back it up with good reasons. I could be wrong. And so if you think that I'm mistaken in this, call me out. Say, hey, here's where I think this issue is. And so that's one thing I want to encourage. And that's where I see the conversations of our culture breaking down so much today. And it saddens me is that we, I believe, too quickly jump to assuming the worst about someone. That you're just a liar. You are a deceiver. You are trying to trick. Clearly, you couldn't believe that rather than they're honestly mistaken. Right, there's a really awesome video that I shared on my Instagram account, uh, a Frank Turk having a conversation at a college campus with a Taoist. And I think they posted on Instagram or Facebook. I think that's where I saw it. And this guy says, hey, I'm a Taoist. I don't hold to your view of morality. I believe that morality is only this concept. And Frank Turk responds and says, well, yeah, it is a concept, but it's a concept that applies to the real world. So if someone came in here and shot someone, there's an actual real action that goes along with the concept of that's murder. 
do you, don't you believe that that action is real? And, and he began to ask this guy a series of questions. And at the end of the series of questions, Frank Turk looks at him and says, you know, I think that your view of morality is a lot more like mine than Taoism. I don't think that you actually believe in Taoism. And the guy, the guy responds and goes, I think you're right. This guy, hey guys, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's, he's thought about this. <laughs> it was kind of a funny ending. The point is this. You could easily call someone a liar, a deceiver. You could assume the worst about them and shoot them down. And all that's going to do is build walls. Right? Who wants to talk to someone that you make a statement and they respond and say, you liar. Like, I don't want to have that conversation. It's assuming the worst about someone. Instead, ask good questions. If you don't know them, if you don't know their intentions, why not give them the benefit of the doubt, assume that they're honestly mistaken, that they have been maybe tricked by someone else, but they believe it and that they're telling you what they believe. And instead, ask questions like, how did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that? Well, do you actually believe this? And that's what I'm going to try to do with our conversation today on morality is try to understand this view, show some actual issues with it and try to present a better option rather than just saying, oh, you horrible person, you're immoral, you're a liar, you're a deceiver. That's not the goal. The goal on my channel is my goal is to think deeply about Christianity, the Christian worldview and the issues related to that. My goal is not to prove you wrong or for you to prove me wrong. The goal is to have intelligent, honest, thoughtful respectful conversations that we can try to discover what is true. Now, obviously there are times I'm a teacher. There are times where I catch cheating on a test or homework. I know the student cheated and they are lying to me. And I know they're lying because I, it's clear as day there's cheating happening here. And so sometimes we do know someone's intention. Sometimes we do know someone's heart and we do know that they're deceiving or they're lying and we need to call that out. Absolutely. But what I see on YouTube 99% of the time, it's not, it's not that. You don't know the person. They don't know me. I don't know them. Why not give someone the honest benefit of the doubt? What does that hurt? And asking good questions, trying to see where they're coming from rather than immediately accusing them as a liar. So hopefully if you're watching this, don't do that to me. Don't do that to other people. I may be mistaken, but hey, let's have good conversations about this issue. Now, the second comment that I wanted to address here, second kind of thought is, is I'm going to be having a conversation with Dr. William Lane Craig on his book, The Atonement and the Death of Christ. Now, I realized that this is a conversation that I think is deeper than maybe a lot of people want to go. That's, and I want to challenge you. If, if someone were to ask you, you know, how are you saved? And you say, well, I'm saved because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. How much more could you explain that? Why did Jesus have to die? How did Jesus' death actually forgive sins? Did he have to die? Why is blood sacrifice necessary? That seems crazy. Can you list some, some, or can you explain at a deeper level how the atonement actually works? How does his death actually atone for your sins? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? He calls us to forgive. I can say to my wife or my friend, Hey, I forgive you. Okay. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Okay. You're forgiven. Cool. And we're reconciled. Why can't God do that? Why is death necessary? Well, that's the way he set it up. Okay. But could he have set it up differently? Did it have to be that way? And I think that also as Christians, we are often told different analogies for the atonement and what Jesus did for us on the cross. Like uh, you went to a restaurant, you ate this huge meal at a restaurant, and then Jesus comes and he pays your bill. So you don't have to pay the price. Is that accurate? Is that really what it means for Jesus to atone for our sins? Or what about there's the judge and his son comes in, his son is guilty of a crime and, his, and, and he says, I declare you guilty 
judges his son, but then takes off his judge's robe and pays the price for his son, pays the price or serves the jail sentence or takes the whips himself. That's another common analogy. Is this accurate? How, how does this accurately reflect what Jesus actually did for us? Or what about you sometimes hear as the objection that how did God just kill this random person? So here's this innocent person and we're going to kill him and somehow that's going to forgive you. That makes no sense. Or why punish innocent people? That's just unjust. You, you say that God is just, yet he punished an innocent person, Jesus. Look, if I cheat on a test and you punish my friend who's in the class instead of me, that's messed up. If I was a teacher and I did that, I would be called out. How is it different with God? See, these are analogies that we use and I think objections that come up that I think a lot of Christians struggle to deal with. And as I had a conversation about the atonement just yesterday, the comment that was made is that it's possible a lot of us think about the atonement like we think about our computer. I push the button, it turns on, that's enough. Jesus died for my sins, his blood saves me, that's enough. And I hope to maybe encourage you and say, look, there's a lot more that can be thought about. We should not be relating to people, to persons, as we do to things. If I took that same approach with my relationship with my wife, you would call me a horrible husband. Hey, her name is Emily, and here's where she's born, and that's enough. I don't need to know more. I don't need to know how she works. See, the computer, I don't have to know how a computer works. I don't need to know the software and how this streaming program works and why sometimes it fails all the time and sometimes it works. I don't need to know all those things in order to produce a video. So why, why bother? But with a relationship, we should care. Imagine that you're like at war or imagine that you are stranded in a burning building and someone comes in and saves you. You're unconscious. They save you and you wake up in your hospital and they say, how did I get here? And they say, someone saved you. And you go, okay, cool. That's all I need to know. Someone saved me. That's enough. No, you want to show your appreciation. You want to show your gratitude to that person who saved me. How did they save me? Tell me what happened. You come in and you want to thank them and you want to, oh my goodness, thank you so much. And, and, and knowing what they went through for you drives this appreciation and this gratitude. And that's what I want to encourage in my interview this coming week with William Lane Craig uh, with you guys. Is, and, if, and if you're still watching me after, you know, 12 minutes, you probably are in that place where you want to think deeply about these things. And the atonement is one that we can kind of skip over. Ah, Jesus died for my sins. That's fine. I don't need to think about that. Like, oh, that person saved me. Okay, that's fine. That's all I need to know. They saved me. That's good. No, we should want to know how they saved and what it is and show our gratitude and appreciation rather than just the surface level. I got saved. That's all I matters. And if I can say it, that seems to be a very selfish, self-centered view. I'm saved. That's all that matters. Let's go. Jesus saved me. Thank you. Rather than wanting to have this deeper understanding of how he did it, why he did it, and what that means when someone sacrifices himself for you. Think about what that shows about your value and your character and their character and all these components that fit in. So here's my challenge. On Tuesday, February 9th at 1.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm going to be interviewing William Lane Craig. What I want from you is I want some good questions of what do you want to know about the atonement? What do you want to know about the death of Christ and why that's significant? I don't want to just have this super high-level conversation conversation where a bunch of people go, ah, I don't need to know that stuff, but uh, making it very practical. The other thing is I'd love for you to connect with me on social media 
and send in some of those analogies that you've heard of, of what, it, what it was like for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And I want to work through the analogies that you've heard to see where they're good, where they're bad, and how we can have a more correct view of exactly what Jesus did on the cross for us. So I want to encourage you again to subscribe so you don't miss that interview coming up in just a few days, as well as go onto social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The links are below as well as on the screen. And send in your questions, send in your comments, send in those analogies so we can work through because this is something guys the death of jesus and the atonement relates to our salvation this is not just like this little piece of technology that helps me accomplish work this is my salvation this is my eternal life that is huge that is huge we should not just take advantage and take the surface level approach and go i'm good this is something that we should dive into it such because it's such a deep profound thing that jesus christ did for us the last thought I have for you, and I just want to say you guys are awesome because I just received a comment from someone in India. This is just, that blows my mind that, that people are, are, are watching and following from India. But the comment came in from India of a person who is a new believer and has been faced with YouTube channels made by Indians, former Hindus, or no, actually they're former Christians. So ex-Christian Indians in India are now producing videos trying to persuade the Christians in the country to not be a Christian anymore. And so this person contacted me, sent me this video series, a four-part series that was made on um, why the Bible is not the word of God and asked, how would you respond? Can I work through this? And so in my the week after my, my discussion with William Lane Craig, I'm gonna be working through some of these videos showing these arguments being made by this Indian apologist, ex-Christian apologist, uh, trying to prove that Christianity is not true, the Bible is not the word of God, and we're gonna be working through those as well. And so one, I just wanna say, I am so blessed to be able to do this. I'm so encouraged that you guys watch and watch from all over the world. It blows me away, honestly. It's so cool as a missionary, and I'm kind of working with one piece group and now kind of doing this and it's going places I don't even know it's going that's amazing but secondly I'm also encouraged that you would send in uh, your your issues your questions the things that you want help with and so I can kind of work through and it, I'm, I'm just grateful that you kind of want my thoughts and hopefully you're getting thoughts from other people as well but I'm grateful for that so if you have other thoughts that you want to share you can always contact me again at the social media accounts and and share those thoughts ask for help uh, suggest topics suggest guests and I, I truly appreciate that because I want to continue to create content that helps you guys think through the issues that you're dealing with the issues that are most important as well as obviously I know the issues that are important, like atonement and the Trinity and, and the ones that I discuss, but I also want to address ones that are, are important to you as well. So with that, we are now jumping into the final or, or the, the main meat of today's conversation. Hopefully those few thoughts were encouraging, some requests for you, but also some encouragement for you. Uh, talking about this idea of morality. Um, here's the comment that I got. Now, if you followed the channel, a few weeks back, I did a conversation on uh, the, the the statement, love is love. You see this on in billboards in people's front yards, the little signs that they stick in their front yard in this house, we will blah, 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 blah. And then what love is love is one of those. Um, I also received it as a comment on my channel uh, saying, hey, love is love, trying to kind of normalize homosexuality. And so a comment came in on that video that said this, love is love is an argument made by children. Here's a tougher question. What will happen on earth if two men or two women have a sexual relationship for 50 plus years? Now in my high school class, as we were studying different ethical theories, I presented this to them and I asked them two questions. And I wish I could ask you and sit there and wait for you to respond, but 
you'd just be probably staring at me. Um, <laughs> I can't do that, but so I got to give you the answer. But the first question I asked was this, what ethical framework is he approaching this conversation from? And after some thought and some discussion, they realized this is pragmatism, right? What he, in the sense he's asking is, what are the practical consequences? What will happen on earth if two people the same sex have a sexual relationship? And if I can't show a negative consequence of the action, then it's not wrong, right? And so that's what it seems to suggest. Now, then I asked a second question to my students, and then I'll ask you here. How would you respond to this question? He says, this is a tougher question. How would you respond? Now, what I didn't do, and what I would say you shouldn't do, is respond by giving the negative consequences. Trying to use his ethical standard to say, well, here's why it's wrong. Here's a negative consequence, and here's a negative consequence, because then you are, so to speak, justifying or rationalizing that as the standard. Rather, I would encourage you, and I would do, is challenge the standard. Right. And again, like this is thought of as Christians. This keeps popping up over and over. And I feel like I'm addressing it all the time because it's huge. Like Christians should not think this way, but they do. Right. You probably heard the story, but a, a student that came up to me at a summer camp like three years ago, I, maybe four years ago. I don't remember. A few years ago <laughs> and said, my pastor and my parents tell me if I smoke weed and drink alcohol, my grades will suffer and I'll lose my friends. But guess what? I smoke, drink, I smoke, al I smoke alcohol and drink weed. Yeah, now you get the point. <laughs> I smoke weed and drink alcohol. I still have good grades and I still have my friends. I'm still playing whatever. Uh, what, so what's wrong with it? Now, I wasn't going to say, well, but if you smoke weed, then it will do this to your brain chemistry, blah, blah, blah. And I, I wasn't going to keep addressing these negative consequences because he's been told, here's a negative consequence. That didn't happen. Therefore, I don't see what's wrong with this action. And so my question to him was, why do you assume the morality of smoking weed and drinking alcohol is based on the consequence? That if it doesn't have a negative consequence, that it's not wrong. And he was taken back because it was like, well, I don't know. Now, I think he assumed that because that's probably how, as he said, that's how his pastors and his parents addressed it. That's how they presented it. Rather than looking at what I will say is, I think, a better Christian view. Now, with this conversation, again, I didn't want to just assume that he was approaching this from a pragmatic ethic. So I wanted to ask good questions. And so I asked him, I said, so I could be wrong. But I want to clarify, are you judging the morality of an action based on the consequences? Are you approaching this in pragmatism that if you, um, if there's no negative earthly consequence of a same-sex sexual relationship, then it's not wrong. Now, then I presented the first challenge. So I'm going to give you three issues, three problems with this view. The first issue is that if morality is determined by consequence, then other immoral actions would or could become good. So if you are simply looking for the practical earthly consequence of this type of sexual relationship, and if there's no consequence, it's not bad, then what about incest? Now, what most people will say in response is, well, but then they produce children that have maybe a deformity or something. Well, what if they had surgery to where they could not produce children? What then is the earthly consequence of a brother and a sister being in a sexual relationship or a mom and his and her son. If they're not producing children, what, what consequence? What about polygamy? What if a man wants to have three wives? What earthly consequence? What about polyandry? Uh, what about, um, you know, polyamory, right? There's a lot of other issues that we can look at and say, if there's no earthly consequence, then this becomes good. You could also 
Actually, I'll, I'll come back to that one in a second. And so that's how I responded. What would you say about these actions? If this is your standard, would you also say that these are good things? And here was his response. He came back and he said, actually, three things. And I want to work through these three points because I think this is really important to work through to understand how to respond to morality. He says, certain actions are objectively wrong. Other actions are morally subjective. Homosexuality is morally neutral, as is heterosexuality. So there are there is objective morality, he's saying. Then he says, my line is based on my set of ideals. Society's lines are based on the set of ideals we have agreed to live by in the process of governing it. Then the third statement, the earthly consequences of a person's actions determines the moral morality of the action. All right, now think about this for a second. He has made three different contradictory statements. What are they? Certain actions are objectively wrong. This means and we have to understand objective and subjective. Objective morality is like medicine. It's like objective truth is like math. Um, it, it, it is true whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not. It's true for all people at all times and all places. Two plus two equals four for everybody. It equaled four 100 years ago, and it will equal four in 100 years. Uh, if your arm is broken, then it's broken whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you want it to be or not. It doesn't matter. The the statement, your arm is broken, is dependent on whether your arm is actually broken, not what you believe about your arm. That's an objective truth. And so objective morality would say something is wrong, whether you believe it or not, whatever our society says or not, it doesn't matter. That thing is wrong. Subjective morality, subjective truths would be like ice cream. It's a preference. It's an opinion. I like coffee ice cream. I like hockey. Um, that's just my preference. That is my opinion. And so what he's saying is that there are certain things that are objectively wrong. Okay. Then he says, my line is based on my set of ideals. Well, now he has his standard of what's objectively right and wrong, but it's just based on his ideals. Well, then it's not objective. It's based on your preference. I have a preference that this is objectively wrong. But if it's only objectively wrong based on your preference, then it's not actually objective. It's not talking about the I object. It's talking about your preference or your ideals. If something is objectively wrong, it's wrong outside of your preference and what you believe. Again, I don't prefer for my arm to be broken, but that doesn't matter in the statement my arm is broken or not. It's raining outside. It's not my preference. That is either a true or false statement based on the rain falling from the sky or not. Not my preference or my set of ideals. And so in that second sentence or that second line, he has now already contradicted the first in saying that his line is based on ideals. Then he says society's lines are based on the ideals that we have agreed to and govern society. So now he recognized in the second line he stated, I say relativism. Morality is based on what I say, my ideals. And then he then presents society says relativism, that it's not based on what I say, but it's based on what society says. So we have agreed to in our society that slavery is now wrong and so it's wrong. So it's not dependent on what you say because our society has agreed to murder being wrong. And so if I go, well, murder is good. Well, then they would say, no, you're wrong. You're going against society and the laws that we have created. And so notice those are even contradictory things. Is, well, is it based on what I say, my ideals, or is it based on the society agreed upon things? But even that would disagree with the objectively wrong statement uh, that we see in the first line. And then comes the last one. The earthly consequence of a person's actions determines the morality of the actions. 
Again, another contradiction. I pointed these all out to him as we had this conversation. If the consequence determines the morality, then it's not what we have agreed to, and it's not what your ideals are, and it's not objective, it's the consequence. So we have almost here four different ways of approaching morality that are contradictory. If something's objectively wrong, it's not based on your ideals, society's ideals, or the consequences. It's wrong or right based on the object itself. Right? It's raining, irregardless if that rain produces a flood and destroys a town, it still rained. The consequence of an action doesn't determine whether the action itself happened or is right or wrong. And so we see this kind of issue. And so I tried to point these out and work out them through them with, with him. But this is a very common approach that we have of that uh, it's, it's society, that whatever is legal is right. Now, here's the problem. If we want to take society says relativism, here's the problem. Whatever is legal becomes good. Whatever is illegal becomes right. And so I asked my students this last week and I said, can you think of any actions that are wrong but are legal? And they were able to think of some. They could come up with things like lying. Lying to my parents, that's wrong. But that's not illegal. Adultery is wrong, but it's not illegal. You commit adultery. You cheat on your boyfriend or girlfriend. You did something wrong, but you're not going to jail for that. There are things that we recognize are wrong that are legal. You could also say back in the 1800s, slavery was wrong, but it was legal. Here's the issue. If we want to say that society determines morality, then when society legalized slavery and legalized segregation, then slavery and segregation were by definition good because that's what was legal. And that would make our celebration not too long ago of Martin Luther King Jr., he would have been advocating, he was advocating for what was illegal to try to change the law. And if the laws determine morality, then he was advocating for what's illegal. That means he's advocating for what's immoral. That makes him an immoral man. In fact, that makes every other social reformer throughout all of his human history immoral. Would we really go that far to say that they're all immoral? Or would we say no? Some societies get bad laws. We mess up because there's a way in which we can judge the law apart from what is simply just legal. And so we recognize this. Now, another issue with the earthly consequences approach, the pragmatism. If pragmatism is your approach, so the first thing I said is that you can have immoral actions become good. If you could just simply show a good result to something, it can become good. The second issue with a pragmatic approach is that you can't know the morality of an action before you do it because you don't always know what consequences are going to play out. If I cheat on this test, am I going to get caught or not? If I don't get caught, I guess it was good because it helped me get the good grade and nothing bad happened. If I get caught and get suspended, well, then it became bad. But then you can't know before you do an action if it's morally right or wrong. See, that's the problem. A true theory of ethics needs to be livable meaning that it needs to be able to help you make decisions. We live in a world where black and white, where morality is difficult. It's hard to know the morality of every single action. And a good, true theory of ethics needs to help us make better decisions, guide us in what we should and ought to do. Pragmatism can't do that because you can't know the consequences of, a, consequences of an action before you do the action. Now, you can maybe have a good guess. Generally speaking, when people do this, it has a good result, but we can't know. Now, the third issue with this is also 
Can you truly know the effects and how far they go? So if you murder someone, well, you had a negative effect on them, but what if that had a positive effect on these 15 people over here who that person was bullying? Or you could look at the issues like slavery, where slavery clearly had a negative effect on those who were enslaved, but had a positive effect on economy, right? And so like, how do we then weigh out all the positives and negatives to try to figure out, is it more so positive? Is it more so negative? And it leads to this very difficult thing because we're not all knowing and we can't know how that action truly plays out in all the ripple effect as it goes out and affects the people in the far motion. And so you clearly go, there's no way to know if this is morally right or wrong. And so if we're going to have a true theory of ethics, like I said, we need to abandon pragmatism. It can't guide our lives. Pragmatism can't help us. Um, pragmatism doesn't separate legality from morality. And if we just base it on laws, then, then that has issues because we know of things that are morally right and wrong that are legal and illegal. And thirdly, it doesn't allow us to judge immoral corrupt governments if they're the ones creating the laws. And so we have to abandon this. Now, in the conversation, I brought up all this and we worked through the conversation and this person was a consistent pragmatist where I brought up torturing children for fun, right? Again, if, if there's just one action that is wrong, objectively wrong, you have objective morality. And most people would say torturing innocent babies for fun is wrong. We know that. We recognize that is true. And so I said, what about that? And he was consistent. He said, if torturing people produce positive results, made them stronger and better in some other universe, then it would no longer be morally evil. That's the pill you have to swallow as a pragmatist to be to, 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 to admit torturing children for fun would, could become good. As long as we can just show a positive result to it, then it can become a good action. Now there's a famous... Um, atheist philosopher, Michael Roos. And he said something to the fact that, of this. He said, the man who says that it's morally good to rape children for fun is just as wrong as the man who says two plus two is five, right? That the, the moral statement, torturing or raping children for fun is good, is just as true and false, not based on opinion as two plus two equals five is not based on opinion. Now I would take that further and I would say this, two plus two equals five is wrong in every single possible universe. There will, be, there will never be anything in any possible universe that makes 2 plus 2 equal 5, unless we change our definitions where 5 now means 4 and 4 means 5. But to, understanding the definitions that we commonly use, nothing will ever make 2 plus 2 equal 5 in the same way nothing will ever make raping or torturing innocent children for fun right. If you hold to pragmatism, you have to say, as long as it produces a positive result, it's no longer evil, it could become good. That's not the way it works. That's not what we recognize and know to be true. Now, so lastly, my last thought here, how would I defend this rather than just say it? Well, this is a, an, an illustration and that I, I think I learned from Greg Kokel and I use this for my students all the time. Um, I have my coffee mug here. It's black. I said, my coffee mug is black. Uh, what color is my mug? And, and someone goes, prove to me the coffee mug is black. Prove to me it's black. How would you prove that to someone? If you said the sky is blue and someone said, prove it to me. I think most of you, as I do again with my students and they say, well, look at it. Like that, like that's all you need. Look at it. It's black. 
And they go, no, I don't, I don't believe it's black. Prove to me it's black. Well, just look at it. No, but prove to me it's black. You don't need a science experiment testing the light waves and reflections of light in order to show that this is black or the sky is blue or the grass is green or brown or whatever. Just look at it. Science doesn't have to confirm that as a true detail. Our sense experience, when functioning properly, can look at this and go, yeah, clearly that's black, and you should be able to just look at it and recognize it. So if someone goes, you know, no, your coffee mug is red. Now, I think most of us, if someone says, no, the mug, the coffee mug, that's red. Most of us would go, stop messing around. Come on, seriously. Like, no, it's red. Dude, you're messing with me. Like for whatever reason, I don't know why you would you would you would stick with that, but like clearly you know that's not red. Like you're messing with me. Now if they honestly were like, no, I I genuinely believe that's red. We now have two options because we know this is not red. All of you looking, you know it's not red. Not just you believe it's not red, or you think it's black, or you believe it's black. No, you know this is black. You could do one of two things. Again, trying to maybe give them benefit of the doubt. If you see like this is genuine, you can say, okay, if, if that is red, what color is this? Right? And so now you try to say, hey, maybe, are there, did they learn their colors wrong? Did someone teach them horrible word? They literally learned this is red and, and this is blue and you, know, you can grab a bunch of colors and they just have all their colors wrong. And you go, oh, you have a different set of vocabulary. That's why you're calling it. Now, if someone goes, no, I learned my colors. This is good. And you recognize that their colors are accurate. The definitions are right. The words they're using is right. But they still think that this is red. Then you know there's something actually wrong. They're colorblind. Something wrong with their eyes. Because if you're looking at that and you think it's red, there's something broken. That when you're faculties, your eyes, your senses, everything is functioning properly. You should easily just be able to look at that and go, it's black. I know it's black. I don't have to do anything else to prove it. And I think the same can be done when it comes to morality. I think that you can look at murder. You can look at torturing children for fun, abusing children and go, that's wrong. Prove it to me. Look, look at this. Look at the dead bodies piled up after the Holocaust. Look at these children who have been abused and tortured their whole lives. Look at this person who was murdered. Look at this woman who was raped. Look at it. Look at these people who are enslaved. That's wrong. Clearly, you can just look and you can see it. Your, our sense of awareness, our perception, we just know it's wrong. If they don't know, I think that's right. My, I'd be like, no, you're, you're messing with me. You can't, you, you can't look at a, at a baby being tortured and beaten and abused and say, that's okay. That's good. You're messing with me. No, I honestly believe that's a good thing. Then I would say there's something broken. At that point, I said in the conversation, I don't, I don't know what else we can do. If someone honestly believes deep down that it can be good to torture innocent children for fun, I don't know what else to do. And so in the conversation that I had, I said, look, you, you know, you know that torturing children for fun is wrong. Pragmatism does not allow you to say that. And so you had to say, well, it could be good in some universe, but you know that's not true. You know it. Just use your eyes. Look at it. You know it's wrong. And so I said, I want to encourage you. Abandon pragmatism. Abandon the worldview and the ethical approach that does not allow you to say what you know is true. If you have some sort of presupposition that's forcing you to say that this is red, give up the presupposition. Don't deny what your eyes clearly are able to perceive because that's what you have to say 
in order to stay consistent in your worldview. Abandon the worldview of secularism that says that morality is relative or based on some sort of pragmatism or utilitarianism that does not allow you to determine the morality of an action based on what we just clearly know and perceive. And instead, adopt something that allows you to say, that's wrong. And that's what the Christian ethic allows you to do. The Christian ethic grounded in the nature of God. It's not based on his commands. He can't command whatever he wants to be true and make it true and right and moral. And there's not some standard outside of him, this Euthyphro dilemma, and said God is the standard. And so his commands flow from his nature. God is essentially loving. And as I talked about on the show quite a little bit ago, that's a part of God's essential nature that can't change. So God can't command for evil to be good. Just like you can't make a triangle have four sides. The moment you say, well, what if the triangle had four sides? Well, then it's not a triangle. It's a square. The, a bachelor is not married. Well, what if? What if the bachelor was married? Well, then he's not a bachelor. And so if you say, well, what if God did command rape to be good or child abuse to be good? Well, then he's not God. The God that we have revealed to us in Scripture, and obviously we have to trust and believe that Scripture is true, and that's what we're going to talk about in the week after the conversation with William Lane Craig, the God that we trust as revealed to us in Scripture is essentially a loving, just, compassionate, merciful, and good being. He can't command for evil to be good. And because he is eternal, his nature is eternal and unchanging, he will always be loving. That will always be the standard. We know that morality is also unchanging as well. That these things that we know are wrong will actually stay wrong. And it allows us to accurately then judge. Here's the last kind of thought that just popped into my mind as we talked about consequences. When I was talking to my students and I talked to people and I say, well, why is murder wrong? And it's like, well, because you go to prison. No, you go to prison because what you did is wrong. Going to prison isn't what makes it wrong. But if murder is not actually wrong, why are we punishing people for it? If we want to say something is wrong because you get punished. No, we punish because it's wrong. If I did something and what I did is not wrong and you punish me, that's messed up. In order to punish something, we punish someone, we have to recognize what they actually did is wrong. And it's not just, I think it is. It's just, I just don't like it. And so I'm going to punish you. If I did that to my students, I get fired. It has to actually be wrong. That's what we have with just laws. And so a true theory of ethics, it needs to be livable, helping us, guiding us, helping us make decisions to know what we should do. God's nature does that. God's nature of love gives us moral duties and obligations. Here's what you should do. Here's how you should act. True theory of ethics recognizes that laws do not create morality, that there's a moral standard above the law to judge laws as being right or wrong. And then because of that, a true theory of ethics is above government and allows us to call out corruptness in government as well. This is what is beautiful, I think, about the Christian ethic, that a pragmatic view cannot give you. So Christians especially abandon pragmatism. Don't determine the morality of, a, of, a, of an action based on the consequences. Yes, generally speaking, a good action is going to produce a good result and a bad action is going to produce a bad result. But even if what you do makes you happy, even if getting drunk makes you feel good and makes you happy, drunkenness is wrong. Even if, as the comment came in on another one of my channels, even another one of my videos, even if smoking weed makes you feel like you're closer to God and connecting with him better, smoking weed is wrong. I have a video on that. You can check that out as well. Even if you feel like it produces this good result, it's so wrong. Morality is grounded in the nature of God, not in our subjective experience of this consequence that we don't even know the full way in which it is affecting things around us. 
So hopefully this conversation has been beneficial and helpful to you. Again, I want to encourage you to comment in, to send in those um, uh, uh, analogies for the atonement that you have heard. Send me your questions for William Lane Craig as we continue to truly appreciate who God is, what he did for us on the cross, and trying to fully understand that to more greatly, I think, appreciate to know him, to love him, and to glorify him. As well as, please subscribe. I got that conversation coming up on the second. The week after that is going to be a conversation looking at the, the truth of scripture and responding to these ex-Christian Indian apologists, as well as I have another conversation plan coming up as well. And then finally, the last Friday of every month at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time is an open Q&A where all the questions I can't get to that you send in that are maybe off topic through Instagram or Twitter or social media, I will address then as well as you can send in live questions once we start. And finally, you actually have the chance to call in and have that conversation with me as well. So I hope this has been an encouragement and a blessing to you guys. With that, have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for be, for sending in questions and comments. It truly is a blessing to be able to sit down, have these conversations with you and work through these issues with you guys. If you've enjoyed it, share it with a family friend, like it, subscribe, and help more people see this because I have fun doing it. Hopefully you like watching it and other people will as well. So with that, God bless. See you guys later. To follow your love will guide my